For listeners of Film Jive, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply go to audibletrial.com filmjive. That's audibletrial.com filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Film Jive Podcast. I am your host, Zach Batanti, and joining me on today's show are co-hosts Andrew Swope and Simone Barros. We are recording this episode on March 13th, 2016. This is episode number 94, where we are discussing Jess Franco's 1973 erotic thriller, Eugenie de Sade, or as it's known in other territories, Eugenie 2000 and Eugenie Sex Happening, starring Soledad Miranda and Paul Mueller. It's been said that mankind is divided into two main categories, those who submit to the circumstances of life and those who act. Among the latter are those who think first, and that doesn't stop them from acting afterward. The others act by instinct and stop to think after the action. That's the major difference, but they're both men of action. The world of tomorrow belongs to us. And you... Mr. Ruddick, I suppose that you act only after thinking things out thoroughly. Does your daughter think as you do? Passionately. (laughs) Then I suppose that you, let's say, collaborate closely with your father. Yes. I see. I often wondered about the nature of your relationship. Ah, I should have guessed. But I tend to beware of my imagination. My mind plays the weirdest tricks on me. That's why I'm glad you clued me in. We didn't tell you anything, Mr. Tanner. No, of course. You didn't come out and say you were lovers. But I'm warning you that from this moment on, I'm going to keep a close watch on you and everything you do. In the 1990 debut issue of Video Watchdog, Tim Lucas famously noted, you can't see one Franco film until you've seen them all. Just Franco's cinema is one of rambling, senseless, plotting, decayed images, and often tedious performers desperately groping their way along Oceanside properties and gothic mansions. As one journeys through this forbidden colony of cinema, they will uncover a dense universe where characters float from one film to another, regardless of setting, genre, or previous cinematic death. These desperados may seem familiar, as Franco often appropriated characters from various sources, such as cinema, history, or literature. In his film Jack the Ripper, Franco cast his most famous antagonist, Dr. Orloff, as the real-life serial killer. In the erratic rites of Frankenstein, potentially the pinnacle of this shared universe, he features mystery novelist Edgar Wallace's character Attila Tanner, Dr. Frankenstein and his monster, and a character from an obscure Mexican serial Franco once viewed as a child, and the historical figure of Alessandro Cagliostro, all in an attempt to evoke the spirit of Universal's monster mashup films of the mid-1940s. This swollen universe not only eradicates our accepted conceptions of cinematic space and time, but also natural laws suddenly the natural and supernatural coexist in a single temporal landscape, placing Franco's cinema with, with the greater shared universe of a mass popular culture. In this regard, Franco becomes more the jazz trombonist than traditional film director, assembling his most beloved fragments of Europeans, Europe's pastime, using film as a physical medium to excavate 
the spirits of his pulp obsessions, mortalizing them before our very eyes. His love of the jazz musical tradition informed his directorial process, often devising his narratives on locations as they unfolded. According to the film's production history, Franco embarked on Eugenie Desade without a screenplay, only a vision, sculpting his creation through instinct, no longer shackled by his previous contract with producer Harry Allen Towers, who Franco produced nine films alongside. Considering this artistic liberation, Eugenie Desade becomes a film of both creative and personal growth, not just for Jess Franco himself, but also the film's central characters, Albert and Eugenie, whose realities transform as Eugenie's sexuality awakens and Albert's expires. A new world is born and the old world abandoned. But within Franco's shared universe, why does the character Attila Tanner, performed by Jess Franco himself, who assisted Dr. Frankenstein and exchanged fists with Count Dracula, suddenly reemerge, trailing this father-daughter duo who originate from Desade's short story, Eugenie Dufranville, and not from the pen of Edgar Wallace? I think uh, what the sh- the shared universe and this sort of like uh, almost collaging technique you're describing, I think it does a lot of different things. I think one thing it does is it liberates Franco's films from having any kind of real self-consciousness. Um, some people have called it sort of syncopated cinema, and it kind of allows Franco to free himself from the concern of appearing naive to the viewer uh the chaos of the film allows for absurdity to be present where it normally would not be and one of the th- the things that i like most about his films is that the real world where the film is being made in the fantastic world within the camera can coexist and be in conversation his camera enters this sort of uh mode of discovery where the reality of the staged fiction can influence the development of the fiction. But I think the question of why Attila Tanner is really curious, because I think think the fact that Jess Franco performs the character himself completely alters the entire reality of the film. You know, most exploitation or sexploitation films that I've I'm familiar with, even the majority of Franco films I've seen traditionally begin with the fantasy of the story already on screen. Whereas within Eugenie de Sade, the film begins as if that is the case. You know, we see the character of Eugenie and a blonde woman with, you know, Bruno Nicolai's score. Uh, Then we cut out of that sequence, revealing Jess Franco sitting in a screening room, watching the footage we just saw. And this entire sequence is intercut between the interaction of what reveals itself to be a snuff film and Jess Franco's observation of it. And my impression is that that almost punctures the fantasy of the film and establishes uh, a whole new reality for the film to exist within. It's interesting where he chooses to depart from the original text. So adding this Attila Tanner character... I think is a really interesting way that he that he's acknowledging that he's working with pre-existing text because it includes himself as as a function of forwarding the story, telling the story, observing the story, collecting the story and and upon the completion of the telling of the story is a very abrupt end to the film that as if the storytelling is the only moment you know that we're that we're really concerned with i think you could have that character in the film but i do think it is somewhat crucial 
for Jess Franco to play him because it does also forge this bond between the filmmaker and his audience in the, the this acknowledgement that we are both voyeurs within this story. And I think it also establishes this potential concept that Attila Tanner is sort of the puppet master of the film, in a way instigates the entire action of the film by begging Eugenie to tell her story and then promising he will end her suffering. And even within the memory narrative, his confronting of Eugenie and her, and her stepfather in some ways inspires them to escalate their actions further because they know they're being watched being observed by a voyeur just like the audience of the film itself right and it definitely changes it starts to depart eugenia from her father or from albert because it's after tanner confronts them and says i know what you're doing like at first it's more like i sense what you're doing I'm, I'm on to you. But then in the silhouette scene, he directly says, I know you've killed two people and she's concerned about it. And when Albert isn't concerned about it, that's where we begin her affair with Paul. And there's a real, she separates herself from the first time from Albert. You, you mentioned, Zach, the, the importance of Franco playing Tanner. And, and I agree with you. And I also think that in a way, he portraying Tanner makes not the film autobiographical, but the character itself is a, I mean, he has this obsession with the save. He's made so many disabled works, and some he's made multiple, multiple times. And the way that he is kind of following, and I need, to, I need to know this story because I need to tell it, because he wants to tell Eugenie and Albert's story, becomes, this is his quest as an artist. He needs to know these bits of European pop culture and redistribute them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. There's there's this um, effort to give value to his work where it's been previously disregarded, which I'm kind of unaware of um, because I'm un- I was unaware of his work before Zach introduced me to it. So Attila's Tanner being played by him, but also that it opens with him in a movie theater watching one of their recordings of a murder almost reminds me of the way a filmmaker watches dailies and and then the last shot at the end of him you know looking just beyond the camera lens is the most for me with having a sense of and and his selection of Marquis de Sade's work is the most for me any indication of an artistic intention so for me it becomes very important maybe perhaps in a way that is less important for people who just purely enjoy Franco's films and I think his presence, it allows for an exploration of power dynamics between directors and actors in a way. Attila Tanner very much wants to know what it feels like to commit the murder without having to touch it. He wants to orchestrate the killings without having to perform them. That's what Albert and Eugenie are for. They are the performers. And I think, you know, you mentioning the final image where the frame freezes on his reaction to Eugenie's death that in a way is sort of this transference of guilt that he's experiencing and sort of a question of, is he mourning the loss of Eugenie or is he mourning the loss of the end of the film or is he mourning the loss of the performer? It almost is as if Tanner tells her to die and then that's when it's okay to die. Like he gives her direction on screen 
Well, one thing is, uh, this film was, although released in 74, was made in 1970. Mm-hmm. And it was with Soledad Miranda, who was pretty much his first muse, uh, who died in 1970, later that year. And uh, he kind of went into mourning for her for a while. So that kind of thing of do you, do you do you think that potentially the ending was altered then? Well, I mean, it's tough to say because so many of his films exist in variant formats. Right. I mean, the one that we have is the one that's most probably most true mm-hmm. to what he did. So this would be the most true to his actual intentions. So much more so than say you know, version of Bond the Living Dead, which is one of his most famous films, and yet the version most people are familiar with pretty much bears no connection to what he actually wanted to do with the film so uh, i actually find it odd that he sat on the film for so long it seems like after her death because in that year of 1970 he made eight films with her Mm -hmm. and was continuing to make more and they were coming out post her death anyway but this one which was one of the earliest ones that uh he did with her as the star she appears briefly in count dracula but i also think it's the one that he most identifies with her as Soledad Miranda, the character, because Soledad Miranda is also a character as well, in a way, in that uh, he very rarely used real names for any of his credits. He usually uh, pulled those from other. I'm a, like Lino Romay is probably his most famous, who's the lady he ended up marrying, is actually uh, like a South American singer that he liked when he was a kid. His actors, which he uses over and over again, Paul Mueller, for instance, is the father in both Eugenie Desade and also Eugenie, uh, her journey into perversion appears in so many of his films out as as like Howard Vernon and so forth, where these like this stock company they're not, they don't even exist as real people. They exist as like dolls that he plays with. Mm-hmm. Which is unlike which is unlike Orson Welles Mercury Theater, where Joseph Cotton is Joseph Cotton. Well, but honestly what I was gonna say is that this film, the entire structure of it, it feels very reminiscent of Orson Welles, who I know Jess Franco had a working relationship with. Yeah, they were actually, yeah, they were close friends, actually. Um, he was like a protege to Orson Welles. But this remembrance, remembrance narrative, where it assumes this flashback structure is not unlike Citizen Kane or not unlike Mr. Arc- Arcadian or... Yeah, which he kind of worked on as well. Um, but the uh, Eugenie in bed, the silhouette that we constantly get of her is reminiscent of Kane in bed when he's dying at the beginning of Citizen Kane. Um, I mean, the other film that it made me think of frequently was Kubrick's Lolita, also because of the flashback structure and the and the trail and the trailing. I guess that you can do Peter Sellers' character is in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Trailing. the The greatest hindrance of the film structurally is the very literal voiceover, which I'm assuming is in all versions of the film. Yeah, um, the voice, the voiceover. I like. I know the the English track is kind of like clunkier, but dialogue. I think dialogue in a Franco film is almost. It's not even secondary. Um, I think sometimes you can watch them without the dialogue, and you still kind of understand what's happening. <laughs> well, that was what I. I honestly kind of wanted that because I felt like there, this film is ripe if you eliminate that voiceover with a lot of potential ambiguity that would be interesting if the images weren't accompanied by this sort of detached monologue, which provides no insight into Eugenie's psychological state. But where I think the theme of memory is, you know, is well expressed visually is at least in the repetition of the imagery. And this is where I think Franco's aesthetic is 
is a strong benefit in a story like this, you know, where we routinely see Eugenie sitting in the oversized armchairs, the repetition of the tree branches during winter, the burning hearth, um, you know, the constant zooming and reframing, uh, because the camera also kind of starts to act as if it's like her mind trying to resummon her memory. So there are images that are out of focus because her memory is fuzzy. So it's kind of like you're watching the film as if Eugenie has sort of become disembodied and she's seeing the story from the perspective of a third party. Well, I mean, I think almost by the end, at her death, she's not, you know, she's not the same person she was at the beginning. I think, I know I wrote to you once that the film's about change. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is. I mean, and uh, we do have uh, Albert when he's first talking, speaking with Tanner, when Tanner says, you contradicted yourself in your writing. And he said, well, I wrote that 20 years ago. I wrote this now. Of course, my ideas change. However, his actual behavior never changes. His personal behavior never changes. He uh, kills Eugenie's mother because of infidelity. He kills Eugenie because of infidelity. I mean, personally, he can't change. Artistically, he can change. But as a human, he can't. Whereas Eugenie's the opposite. She does change as a human. And that's what I, where I look at as a, go, this is a film about change and how you need to change it, not only artistically, which he did, this was a huge change from what he was doing with Harry Allen Towers, but also as a person, you have to find personal growth. Um, I also look at the film as a, a statement of kind of like nature versus nurture. In the original uh, Eugenie uh, story, uh, he's, uh, he's not the stepfather, he's the father. But uh, Franco deliberately changes it to his to her stepfather, and I uh, because I look at it as her nature is of her mother, whereas he's nurturing her to be him. But in the end, that fails. Well, I think that that's present in the in, in the book that in a way she is the perfect woman because she's not in his eyes she's not a woman at all. Like she's right. She is her father's creation. She is a transgendered person she has a, a man's mind her father's mind and she's just in a woman's body but by eliminating their blood relation at all though you can't even say it's in her nature to be like him no yeah i don't know that she has a man's mind though well i'm not saying i'm not saying in the no, that's film like, that's like to say is like that's his way of looking at it Oh, I even think that albert thinks more that they're kin to each other I and mean, he, he very flatly states that the character does that they are akin, that they like to enjoy in, in what they, you know, consider to be forbidden and that they take a pleasure in that. But I think that the way she's portrayed, she still is very much a, a young girl. She she very much understands sex as a plaything, as something that is that's titillating and, and just a, a sensational experience. It's not until her relationship with Paul that she begins to handle sex in a different way. I don't know that that's, I think that's the emphasis of the body language where she pulls her feet up to her chest is she still very much has a girly and a girlish uh, way about her. Yeah. This is, it's almost like this is a phase that she's going through just a bizarre transgressive phase. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that is kind of a strength to it because when you show a lot of times when you show a woman seeking out sexual satisfaction and seeking out sexual deviance, there is a search to go, oh, does she have sex like a man? You know, oh, is she more? And and here it seems very much that it still is in a feminine 
way and a feminine approach, especially the kind of grin on her face when she's strangling the photo model. She looks very much like a child at play. And then and then even the play pretend of the, you know, hitchhiker. Oh, when she's doing the strip tease and she can't get her boot off and she's oh, yes. laughing at her and she's laughing at herself. Yeah. And it, it's all things but what you would, you know, really want out of a sexual strip tease from a, you know, in a nightclub, you know, in a strip club or something like that. Like it has this reminder that she's young. I do think that's where the film subverts the femme fatale role that she is positioned to be playing. One note about the body language is the sequence where Albert tells her that he killed her mother. Uh, her body language is completely different. She is sprawled out on the chair against the fur in this red bathrobe. For most of the film, when they're committing the crime, she is always in a state of submission. Like the dialogue that she states back to Albert is, you know, I promise, father, I will obey. So there is a certain absence of of agency in a way well i but yes placed in there because of a great sense of admiration which even attila tanner expresses admiration to albert you know mm-hmm. they, they they both say that he's brilliant and they both say that he's underappreciated this is where when you were kind of talking about the reflexive reality that i wonder if jess franco has an kinship to marquis de Sade because her opening voiceover states that Albert was a writer who was not recognized. Um, we know that Marquis de Sade is, when you look at his biographies, he's talked more as being, you know, arrested and and serving time as an aristocrat who indulged in all these illegal sexual uh, fantasies and had this insatiable sexual appetite. And therefore, it, you would, you know, his work isn't discussed with the way like Gustave Flaubert, you know, is, is discussed. So then it seems to be this reflexive level where Jess Franco also doesn't have his work elevated because it is pornographic. And so there, there seems to be this continual statement that from Eugenia's character, from Tanner's character, how much they admire Albert. See, I don't know if I see his relation with Albert in that Franco has such an instinctual way of working, whereas uh, Albert, everything is so precisely planned, where he's much more like analytical. Because I almost saw Tanner and uh, Eugenie's devotion to him as an artist is almost kind of, they haven't found themselves. They think this is what a great artist, because when they um, murder the, uh, the nude model, I mean, he has everything planned to a T, whereas Franco would have done it instinctually. He wouldn't have planned it. He would have just gone, this is what I'm, I got this idea, and then planned it on the fly, planned it on the go. Because that's how art is created to him, which is, comes from his jazz upbringing. This is how you do it. You feel your way through it. You don't plan it out this step by step. Which what, why I don't see his connection to Albert, for instance. Well, he has an admiration. Tanner says he wants yeah. to tell the story. He wants people to understand that Albert is someone to admire and look at. But yes, I definitely agree with you that the difference in the planning, what was interesting to me is, you know, Albert outlines his plan and then he doesn't really abide by it. He says the problem with murderers is there, they try to hide and they end up being conspicuous. But that's exactly what he then does. They're wearing these ridiculous costumes 
he's wiping the fingerprints off of, you know, the neck strangling device. And he's doing all these things that he said, that's exactly how murderers are caught. And, and I do agree with you that the one murder that he does do that's not planned and, and is not elaborate, it's not, it doesn't have any of the fun quality to it. It doesn't have the torture quality. It, it's not an extended murder the way all the other murders are is the murder of Paul, which I personally really hate because I'm looking forward to a murder of a man that was as elaborate as the murder of the women. But at that point, narratively, Albert is just enraged. So, yeah, that was more of a crime of passion then. So I think that I think that it is interesting this distinction that you're making that the Albert character is so calculated, but then it's at that murder that he's not calculated, and that's the one yeah, where that Tanner leads, that leads directly catches downfall, him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I will say though, uh, in the regard to like kind of like bourgeoisie society, Franco was supposed to be a diplomat when when he was young. That's what his, his uh he actually has a relatively uh. I wouldn't say noble, but well-respected family in Spain. And uh, he kind of threw all that away to uh, to attend a film school in Paris, the uh, the government film school in Paris. And uh, he was kind of the black sheep of his family because of... Well, that's really, into. really ironic because... Or not ironic, but Marquis de Sade is the child of a diplomat and also, you know, was aristocratic and was a embarrassment to his family. Yeah, he actually uh, left Spain because of uh, the government ran uh, Spanish newspapers said that he would he and Bunuel were uh, two of the greatest dangers to uh, Spain. So here's what I think is interesting in that do because I don't know just Franco at all. Was there any expression of the fact that Louis Bunuel could do what he was doing and he was not um, in the hire of sex exploitation? that he was making films and his use of nudity, it seems unrestricted from a sensual, sexual arousal. Whereas it's in the Jess Franco's films that I've seen, the sex is there to, to arouse, very similar to what we would see in a, in a pornography. I don't know whether there's any sense of frustration. It doesn't seem as though there is, but I don't no, know. No, I think I he I think he made for the most part what he liked. His films are uniquely his more so than I think any other filmmaker. Um there's no one else that could quite make a Franco film. He loved comic books. He loved uh horror films. He loved uh erotic erotic comics in uh Europe at especially at that time were a big deal. They were widely read, widely distributed. Uh, as you know, I mean, things like eroticism in Europe is looked at much differently than it is here. That I don't think that was where uh, people looked down on him. I think it was like his unusual film techniques is what people typically, especially in Europe, looked down on him about. And uh, his earlier films, he actually made relatively classical style films early on. <laughs> that's, as he just grew as an artist, that's just not what he wanted to do anymore. I think he was pretty comfortable with where he was. How how much do you think, though, the, the say the content of his films uh, was influenced by the fascism in Spain and the censorship? I mean, a lot of his movies had somewhere dealt with someone of authority controlling someone without any kind of authority, which is, is in this film. You see that in The Erotic Rights of Frankenstein with uh, Cagliostro as well. I mean... That runs 
throughout all of his films, pretty much, that kind of control of an authority. I think that fascist history of Spain plays a, a big part in his films. I think two of the most important things when you watch a Franco film that you have to have, I think, to have some sort of knowledge of Spain, but more than anything, to have biographical information of Franco is almost essential. And that's why where I kind of said, like, it's neither or kind of thing. If you fall under the spell, you want to know about him, and thus you you get more out of his film. And I think that's where Tim Lucas's quotes, quote comes in. You can't see one of his films without seeing all of his films. Because they're incomplete without knowing the whole package. Which makes him strange as a as a filmmaker. I don't I don't think there's any other filmmaker quite like that. I don't know if there's any other artist quite like that. Where you have to know them, their personal life, in great detail. And you have to kind of see everything that they've done. And, and he made it impossible because he made so many movies. I think that this film, there is an understanding of it with as an isolated work. I also think that with Venus and Furs as well, that there is, I mean, in Venus and Furs, for me, there's a lot more going on in cinematic device and in expression um, with the tableau and, and contrasting visual worlds with contrasting of the characters. But I think they do work alone. I think that there you can understand. I do under, I understand what the read, what the um, reading says when it says you to watch one and, and watch them all. But I don't think that there's an incompleteness with the films. Each film does feel complete and whole. But the thing is, and I've learned this, and I know a lot of people that get into Frank kind of learn this, is that you can see one of his films and you can enjoy it, not enjoy it, whatever, but it seems complete. But the more you learn about him, you begin to understand certain aspects that run throughout his film and how the the personality or the the personal nature of it and it makes it that much more a mistake or something goofy all of a sudden becomes i don't want to say moving but you can it almost becomes like this is a personality trait this is this is something personal that he's expressing as strange as a bird woman can be it's a nostalgia from his childhood that I don't know without this information, it can just be like, oh, this is a, an eccentric character instead of a longing of his childhood. Well, I, I will just say, not to go off on the erotic rights of Frankenstein, but, Frankenstein, but uh, I didn't know that about the Bird Woman, and I still thought the Bird Woman was the greatest thing I've ever seen in a movie. So. Yeah, I mean, it's one of his great characters. I think um, in Female Vampire... Lino Romay's female vampire does not turn into a bat. She turns into a seagull. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, it was the assumption was because that's what flew over his head. In reality, he made the film after visiting Soledad Miranda's home. And that's where he ended up making the film. And seagulls were there. That's what haunted that island. Not bats, but seagulls. And his romantic melancholy for Soledad Miranda, he connected to the seagulls. So this kind of lonely female vampire, he looked as her. And so that's what she would turn into. She would turn into a seagull, not a bat. Which, yes, definitely. I mean, that, that, I think that experience is what a lot of people have when they find an artist that they like and they want to know that this artist had some sense of intention. But I do think that the images that he uses, because some of them are, are known, because we do know Frankenstein, because we do know Marquis de Sade, 
that even when we come to maybe the lesser known, not that not that a bird and a woman haven't been compared before, they're the Valkyries that are very similar in an archetype that you you might associate when you look at the erotic rites. But I I don't I think that it can be rich for the viewer if they never read about Jess Franco, those kind of things. In fact, for me, without those things, I would not be able to watch Jess Franco because because of the pornographic elements get to be overwrought and overwhelming. But those aspects, which it's nice to know that it comes from his personal background and, and you want that to be true of, of artists, but I don't feel that I needed to know it to be intrigued by um, what the bird woman, um, her, her, her aesthetic and the way she moved and, and her, vocal, her, her, her voice that he put in with the bird, the actual bird sounds coming from her. Vera Frankenstein, is, I, I really like that character in that film. And so I, I think it's a strong suit that the films can exist and the lexicon can be delivered to you in the time that you're watching his films. And if you then, and if it's richer for you and greater for you to look deeper, then that's great. But it's not so esoteric as, as, maybe, as maybe filmmakers who, when you watch it, it it's, it's just un, inaccessible without the pre-existing history. Yeah, I don't like. I don't know if his work is inaccessible. His style is uniquely his. Uh, that turns a lot of people off. So I don't. But I don't think they're inaccessible in that regard. But I just think it adds additional layers to the work, especially since it's such a giant body of work that he was constantly making mm-hmm. films about himself and his background and his memories and things. I, I mean, Franco's understanding of Desaad is still kind of rooted very much in within the culture that he's occupying in, in the 60s and 70s, meaning that he never entirely commits to illustrating Desaad's sexual descriptions on screen. Like his, his rendering of Saadian imagery is very much confined to the female form fixating on modern objects which define female sexuality you know the breast the anus the vulva like his tableau in that sense is very limited whereas i think if he actually did illustrate the human cruelty and the depravity of desaad's imagery it kind of walks the line of does he want to be titillating or does he want to be shocking so that's that's just why I guess if you look at actually how how graphic sex is in his films compared to what he's what he's referencing, it's I I think people somewhat exaggerate the explicit sexual nature of his work. Oh yeah, no, he definitely and he ended up making some hardcore pornography out of the Sade's work as well. But even then, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think it ever gets into the realm of, say, like what Pasolini did with it. Whereas Pasolini's, I mean, you do feel disgusted. I don't, I personally have never felt this. Now, granted, I have a higher tolerance for these kind of things. It's also what you're doing with the work, what your intention with the work is. And that's what I'm saying is Pasolini does want to discuss the viewer, whereas Franco is not trying to discuss the viewer. No, I think his intention is to, is arousal. I do think there's a clear drive for that. And, And so... You know, I think I think it it has to be 
understood or accepted as that. And, and that's, and that's where it, it is very much, if we look at it as an artifact of society, you know, women, the ratio of women nudity is to male nudity is appalling. And, and the use and the, the way women are depicted, their bodies are depicted is so common. It's such a, it's an image that it seems disposable almost. And yet the restriction of showing, you know, the male genitalia by absence of making it that common, it makes it almost like sacred. And, and but I don't think that that's something that, um, you know, Franco's even aware of because I don't think it's something that men are aware of. You, you're acting out of the impulse of what you want to see and what arouses you. So this is where you go if you're a man. Whereas Catherine, you know, um, I don't know that I'm pronouncing her name right, but Brilla, she's working out of a woman's desire, and, 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 and which is hard to do because there's such a male-dominated society. Even Anais Nin admits that much of her erotic literature was still from a male gaze, um, and she feels that she succeeded a few times in coming up with a language that was distinctly female. But I do think that, you know, we have filmmakers, even Vera Slilova in Prague, she's a filmmaker that starts to get into and explore, explore women sexuality and what's alluring to women and what's arousing to women and seeing the male form is in fact arousing as much as people want to say oh the, the male form is not beautiful it absolutely is beautiful and should be seen um not that i'm saying that that franco should be the one to show it because he shouldn't but um it's it's definitely interesting to me that not much has changed since the periods of him making and through all the decades of him making films this conversation still goes on and it's just can we give voice to the women directors who are shaping a language and finding a language that's my soapbox i guess my question is then sort of to continue with that is then how do you feel the role of a a woman is portrayed in the content that is not sexually explicit i think it is interesting i've personally found myself you know relating to Eugenia, even sitting with her feet and her knees to her chest, that's a pose that I still sit in, you know, as a, as an adult woman, there, there is something that there are these habits or these things that are a part of being a woman. So I do think that, um, he lets the narrative of them grow and lets the narrative is, is not so restrictive especially in Venus and Furs, you know, I, I really like that her vignettes of Wanda, who looks like the woman on the beach, but she's not so much, you know, in revenge of her death. And she's more so in a haunting kind of presence. And there's this triumphant theme that happens when she kills the people who killed her each one, one by one. And you know that I especially, I actually loved Maria Roan's character in the other Eugenia, where she is this woman who she's orchestrating it. She's the Albert figure. She's the Marquis de Sade figure. I just hate that she must die at the end because that woman in literature always must die. You know, Madame Bovary must die and Roxana must die. And any woman who takes control of her own sexuality must die. But I think, again, that's a sign of the times, you know, that I don't think that's necessarily something that Franco is conscious of or trying to do. 
this is the text, the material that he has to work with, and all of literature up until when he's making movies have already kind of expressed and hammered out some of these things. I'm curious, in a lot of, in Eugenie Desaad, in She Killed an Ecstasy, in Empiris Lesbos, in so many of his films, he does have, a, like, a say, a woman committing crimes of some sort, murder, whatever. However, I never really look at them as I would look. The way, I guess, the way that he portrays them is not in the way of, um, I should look at this person as a villain. I don't know if I have sympathy, but I almost, like, empathize with them in every regard. And she killed an ex, she, she is just getting revenge on various people. But I don't look at her as a villain. She's not, when she kills these people, I'm, I do empathize with her plight that she's in. I do think he, he, the way that he portrays women is much different than, I think, the vast majority of directors, not only in the exploitation genre, but in film in general. I'll say male directors, to get away from female directors in that regard. But I, I do think he has more empathy for them than pretty much the vast majority of male directors do. It, for me, is what makes it interesting to continue to watch. Through the commodification of the of the female nude form that is happening, there is still this whole character that is that is expressed. So, just because I don't know the period that he's in, I, it's interesting. I don't know if it's unique to him. Well, I, I mean, look at just because you saw some of the film Requiem for a Vampire, the Jean Roulin film that we watched that has the extended rape sequence. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That has none of, yeah, that has none of what Frank. I mean, as much as I like Jean Roland, like women really are sort of, you know, set pieces, but I also think that's because characters are not really yeah, characters, characters are, in his aren't film, important so. in his films. Yeah. Like character and story aren't important in his film. It's atmosphere and tone. Well, I think that is a good contrast or comparison because, yeah, I didn't find in that film any development of the women and. In all of the Jess Franco, I guess I've seen three of them, there is, you know, uh, development. And and really a scene that I love in the the longer title one. The story of her journey. Yes. Version. I, I love how her father lets her go. I mean, I mean, in that the woman asks for her and says, you know, he's like, why are you having sex with me? And she's like, there's a price I'm asking for. I want your daughter. She's naming the price of her liaison with him, and she's gaining a woman who she's interested in. That, that was, was a kind of story element um, that allowed me to kind of continue watching the film, whereas, you know, I, I'd have a very low tolerance when it comes to sexual explicit imagery. And I do agree that his framing, his, his composition is really motivating and and it it captures me. So that and I think his use of color like the red in Eugenia Desart that color is such a strong use in the story and in the visuals. Um when we're in the room where the woman is dancing it's red when the they're wearing red when we're in the jazz club there's red there's the part where you know in her close up in the jazz club where it completely falls out of focus it ends up being just this almost velvety red. And and I guess I maybe just haven't seen where, you know, there is a sense of clumsiness that people criticize in his filmmaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's clumsiness if you want it to be clumsiness. And it, 
it's not if you don't want it. I think a lot of the clumsiness came from he made more than 200 movies. He was constantly making movies. And if he was making that fast, he must be clumsy, which I don't agree with. Right. I mean, one thing that's often criticized is just Franco's dependency almost on the zoom lens. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. You know, the most practical reason just being that he didn't, it was a way to minimize camera setups. And it creates movement. Visually relocate the frame in a practical way and save money and time, you know? And I think that if you think about the zoom lens, because, you know, a Steadicam or a dolly moves through a space while the zoom lens moves in and out of a space and it enters and exits and it either expands or contracts a space. And I feel like people's rejection of the zoom from what I've read is as a way of cinematic movement is because it isn't a technique which the human eye identifies with which I think is absurd that we're rejecting it because our eye does not do that. Franco's use of the zoom is just interesting because it it kind of feels like he's using the camera as an instrument. Uh, I know people have compared it to the way that you move a trombone. I think that, yes, I agree with you. The moving in and out and shifting of the lens created layers of meaning because many times Mm -hmm. the cue was with um, Eugenia's voiceover. So there were be many times when it was in, especially the Zoom, when they're in the photo club, it moves from her as she moves toward the model and pushes past her and the Zoom lands on, you know, Albert. So there, there's like almost this transference, you know, that, that is directly happening of she now is being sent, you know, as kind of a puppet for him. So I think it, it's it's thematic. I think it's visually intriguing. But here's where I question the clumsiness is because working with zoom lenses are actually very difficult, you know, um, unless you have a servo. Servo, yeah. Right, to them. So that it's kind of a motorized mechanic, you know, thing. I don't know if he had that, but his zooms are very smooth. And when he also uses zooms and he's panning, the camera at the same time, that is actually difficult. I mean, it takes like a kind of practice to have that kind of fluidity. And so, um, yes, he, I, yes, I agree. There's going to be clumsiness when you do move quickly, when you shoot quickly, but it does seem that where he wanted an image to be smooth or where he wanted a movement, a zoom to be almost as though we're not aware that the zoom is even happening, that those are successful in, in the, in these films. Yeah, well, I, I I think the clumsiness thing is people want to view it as clumsy when it's not. His early films are classically made, so he was able to do a more traditional-looking film. It's He just no longer wanted to do that at a certain point. Right, and I mean, what I what I like about it, and I don't even think you necessarily realize it as you're watching the film, but his movies are almost completely devoid of the, the shot-reverse-shot exchange. Because he does apply the zoom. I agree. And I, and whereas I used to think atmosphere was pretty simple to execute because film is such an immersive medium, I'm starting to see that I don't think that does come so easily. And he uses, when he, the setting that he selects becomes so much a part of what he's photographing that it helps with the atmosphere as well. And it's not that we have. I like that we have long scenes, that he that his scenes are longer, that people 
have conversation and that conversation has tension and that we don't move from, you know, even as we move from Brussels to Paris, we really kind of spent time in the city just to reuse, because he seems to reuse shots a lot throughout Eugenia and the, the clock tower with the skyscraper. We're, we're there a lot. And then we recognize it when we're in the silhouette scene where Tanner directly confronts um, Albert and Eugenia. And we're in that space. And that's in the reflection when she is saying they've been caught and this changes things for her. And she observes that it doesn't change anything for Albert. So he reuses that space. We come to know that space. It seems intentional. Even the exterior of her house when she takes the walk, again, it's repeated shots, um, but it really makes the wintry, the unending winter, you know, that, that kind of happens in the film, a part of the film, the way a book, the way literature does. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is, seeing his effort to create atmosphere is definitely among things that I like in his films. It's less about like, do you love this film? It's like, do you love the world that the film is existing in? Well, I mean, architecture plays such a major role. And again, that's that's one of his loves, is architecture. I mean, jazz, comic books, architecture, and food, which I never really get a food aspect in his films. But I mean, one thing I was, I, that I was kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts on was going back to the, the church in Berlin. It almost seemed to also give that character like this supernatural presence. When he arrives at the hospital, he kneels beside her bed. And then there's the hard cut to the church in Berlin that we see several times with this incredibly dissonant musical score. And then we return to that hospital room and Franco's body appears to be like in this position of prayer. And then that's when Eugenie regains consciousness. Well, I think all those images that you're talking about definitely point to him being her confessor. Like as a priest, you know, as the role that a priest plays. And it's definitely a deathbed confession. That's ultimately how she's able to die is by confessing. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a a sanctification that happens. And so I think that all of the images that you're talking about do add up to an expression of Attila Tanner being that role. And ritual is, I think, a part of, or is, is what I saw in Venus and Furs that I liked so much, is, is this ritual that, that happens and that's a part of. It's very Catholic for me. I think this film is essentially, ultimately, a movie about rituals. There's the actual reality that the characters are experiencing, and there's the reality we're experiencing as a viewer, and then there's the pretend of these sort of staged fictional events, you know, the snuff film, the photo shoot, the game of death, all those things have these artificial pretenses, but then you're also observing the ritual of that, the changing of the costumes, the application of fake blood, the way that they kill the hitchhiker, even the lives that Albert and Eugenie lead before they start committing the murders of he goes to town, he comes back, and I read, you know, or I go for a walk. Everything is sort of this continual ritual. And that even speaks to the repetition of the images you're talking about, which I also think is a benefit that the film does that, and it's a memory narrative, because when you're remembering things, multiple images replay over and over again. 
but I but I think there that ritualism is is very much you know a part of of the film. Yeah, I I agree, and it's interesting because I feel like the element of Paul breaks the ritual. Paul does break the ritual, but he also uh, brings forth uh, uh, Albert's ritual killing. Oh yes, his castration. Well, Albert's own Albert. I mean, Albert commits Harry Carey after he kills him. So even that's the ritual of suicide, you know. So Paul breaks their typical ritual that they have, but creates a new ritual for Albert. I mean, the th- going back, is it? It's Paul. His name is Paul. Yeah. I just for some reason was thinking his name was Mike. Uh, <laughs> no, Paul. But one of the things that I think I really like about Paul, and just his presence and what it allows for Eugenie to do in a way, is that. Like the laundry conversation, and maybe maybe I'm totally off base, and you can tell me, Andy. But the fact that they like there is a question of who does your laundry in a film like this, uh, and it has there's no real thematic intention behind it. It's just a conversation. It's like just this digression into, well, this is how my laundry is done. There's something unique that the film even has space for a moment like that. Well, I think a lot of his films have spaces like that that mm-hmm. have just kind of come out of nowhere and they just are kind of moments of i don't know like humanity normalcy or whatever i don't know maybe norm more normalcy than anything uh and and i think maybe it's paul's normalcy that attracts eugenie uh because i actually think he's the phoniest of all the characters yes. meaning that he's the one that's most playing a role and i know people like this in real life and they are just playing roles yes uh, where Albert, uh, Albert is Albert. Albert's real. He is true to himself, whereas I don't think Paul is. So I think maybe it's the normalcy that Paul creates is what's attractive to Eugene. I find it hard. I, f- I agree with you. And he's he's mundane and he has pretenses that the other characters don't have. Um, but, but I think that that's because they have all found their persona. Mike, my, uh, Mike, Paul, Paul is clearly still in search of. He's playing the character of disenfranchised jazz musician. Yes. And and that's where I don't understand why Eugenia falls in love with him. Because isn't isn't Eugenia in her own way doing the same kind of thing? Yeah, she's playing the role for uh for Albert. And she's also playing a role initially for Paul. She's playing a role for Paul, absolutely. She's going in. This is her intention. She's suppo- she is to get him to be attracted to her. She is to lure him so that he will be murdered. But I, I think the things about her that draw her to Albert or allow her to be susceptible to Albert's puppeteering are sincere to her. I, I think that when even she says that Tanner is like them, you know, so she her even reaction to Tanner is, independently Tanner approaches her and says, I want to meet your father, set it up for me. And she goes ahead and does it because she does see a connectivity to him. And it's very intellectually based. Her comment about the hitchhiker is that the hitchhiker is an idiot. She has this attraction to the intellect. And Paul is a faux intellect as he talks about Che Rivera and he talks about, you know, Miles Davis. He has, and as his room is decorated with posters of nude women, there just is this, faux intelligence to him and that's where i think that for me i i just think it's that he's the opposite of albert as but i don't think there is real is any more thought than that as to 
would she really have fallen in love with Paul? That's what I mean with it's like the the normalcy of Paul that attracts her because by this point she's already starting to drift from Albert because of fear of being caught and different things. It's he's he's offering something stable, something normal, and that's what's attracting. It could almost be anybody. It could be Zach instead of Paul, you know, and it would have the same consequences would have happened. Well, I would like to think I'm a little bit more of a catch than Paul. <laughs> well, you don't have that mustache, you know. That's true. Although that looked like that was fake as well. <laughs> I doubt it was. I thought that was the real deal. I, I do think that it's just one of those elements. It was one of the elements of the film I didn't like. It felt less intuitive. It, it felt more device-driven. Oh, I agree with it. It did seem like we. this is what has to happen at the end. But yeah, I, almost, I do think that she's more attracted to getting away from Albert than being with Paul. I, I agree. And I appreciate, I do like that in the narrative, her departure from Albert is established and already at work in herself when she does meet Paul's. Because I think that's truer to her, to experience, to experiences that people have in life um, and, and experiences that women have in life. You were talking about the male nudity and, and Frank who does show more male nudity than most directors of that of that ilk, I will have to say. Erotic rights from Frankenstein, we definitely have some yes, male yes, the, yes, and I appreciate it. The only thing that I, that I, you know, had a problem with is that it was only shown as um, the character is being tortured. And so there's sort of emasculation is when a male's, you know, penis is going to be viewed, when he is being emasculated. But a woman, when is she being, you know, defeminized you know is it also when her breasts are being shown when her when her vulva is is on display you know are those same things happening no they're not happening because she's attracting and and that male nudity is not meant to attract or arouse it's because the penis is evil (laughs) it's not (laughs) evil (laughs) what that scene was was that 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 scene actually was a recreation of uh, a torture scene from the mask of fu manchu with boris karloff and the guy is put in a loincloth in that scene. I actually thought it was kind of interesting that Franco did show him, yes. show the man naked in that, that's what in his mind, Franco's mind, well, why would they have given him a loincloth? They would have just stripped him. Naked. Yes, yes. So I do appreciate that. I, I almost felt at the moment where Vera has convinced the monster not to stop attacking her and to join her, which is just a very short-lived victory on her part. But when he sweeps her up in her arms, I kind of thought, okay, now we're going to get a sex scene between her and the monster and we'll see him and all of his, you know, endowment that would follow the physique of a man like that. Too much silver, too much silver paint. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't, we didn't get that. Instead, Cagliostro puts her under his mind control. And I, I, so it just was, but I know that I'm expecting where my arousal would take me and that's not. You might want to watch uh, Lady work. Frankenstein. Then. Somewhat of the around the same time period, mm-hmm. Frankenstein's daughter in that one, Rosal- uh, Rosalba Neary, does uh, does uh, from what I remember, it does have sex with the creature in that one. Well, I will, I will check it out. This certainly has like thrusted me back into just to like recalibrate myself. I'm like, I have to read Anais and then I have to see you know daisies again by vera stolova i i have to like get back into the realm of defining sexual imagery you know outside of the male gaze because it it, it can be overwhelming 
Zach, I'm curious. Um, have you ever found anything in a Franco movie arousing, though? I told Simone this that to me, I always attributed the nude women as it's kind of just it's the mystique of the atmosphere. I made a joke when you're we watching Erotic Rights that Bird Woman was <laughs> was a big turn on, but uh, but no, yeah, I agree with you. I don't I don't come to the films with any expectation of, to being uh, of being aroused. I mean, that could be at least for both of us. Partially, you know, we're we're looking at these films so much after the fact. I feel the same way about um, John Rowland's films. I don't find them arousing or erotic whatsoever, and he actually hated shooting the uh, sex scenes. Really? Because, like, 60% of his films... Yeah, no, he hated it. He hated it. That was always... uh, He had to do it. But that's stuff that he always wanted to cut out. Well, I definitely give Franco um, credit for, you know, something that Anais Nin said in her diaries um, when she began writing Erotica, and it was just for one person, actually. It wasn't that she was writing to be published. Uh, a, A person who she never saw, never met, never had any, you know, direct correspondence with, hired her through a book collector to write erotica for just for just him to read. And he would send her notes back saying, lose the poetry, more sex, lose the poetry, more sex. And he would pay her a dollar a page to write these things. And he also paid other writers that she was friends with. And they became more and more frustrated because they all would get the note, lose the poetry, keep the sex, that she ends up writing a letter to this mysterious patron. And and in it, she says, sex must be mixed with tears, laughter, words, promises, scenes, jealousy, envy, all the spices of fear, foreign travel, new faces, novels, stories, dreams, fantasies, music, dancing, opium, and wine. And, And she's kind of making this point that sex without these things is not as as alluring, she says, the source of sexual power is curiosity and passion. And and I think that he, um, if he has to have these scenes, if he's in, you know, sexploitation and that's what he's been hired to do and that's what his producer wants and that's what the audience wants, he has mixed it with myth and archetype from Cagliostro to, to, I didn't realize that Atelier Tanner was another literary character, but to that character, to even the archetype of Bird Woman. And I think that makes the films very much he, something that you're viewing that's not just pornographic, but porno, pornography with the poetry. So I thought an appropriate place to end the conversation is uh, with a quote from a German philosopher named Johann Herder, who wrote about the art lover. And he states, Consider the lover of art sunk deep in contemplation who circles relentlessly around a sculpture. What would he not do to transform his sight into touch, to make his seeing into a form of touching that feels in the dark? He moves from one spot to another, seeking rest but finding none. He shifts from place to place. His eyes become his hand and the ray of light his finger. Or rather, his soul has a finger finger that is yet finer than his hand or the ray of light. And when I read that quote, it makes me think of Jess Franco. <laughs> He's in search of making a film that is about sensations, is about textures, is about digressions, and that narrative is just simply the framework to explore 
those obsessions. The uh, the first book about his work was titled Obsession. I think a lot of people that are into his work look at it as a cinema of obsession. <laughs> So that's our show for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation on Jess Franco's Eugenie Desaad. I'd like to thank Andrew Swope and Simone Barros for joining me. Andy can be heard on the Steve and Andy Meet Batman podcast, which can be found at stevenandy.blogspot.com. And you can read his DVD and Blu-ray reviews at rockshockpop.com. And you can find Simone's work at stochasticartworks.tumblr.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the film or respond with any feedback you may have, you can do so by sending an email to filmjivepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Google+, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed, where you can also leave a review, which goes a long way in expanding our listenership. And please be sure to visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive to start your free audible.com trial. Thanks for listening. Check back in a couple weeks for our next episode. And until then, remember to keep on jiving. (laughs) 